You're listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Angus Soderberg, and today's episode is part of The Arc, a special series that explores connections between climate change impacts, our climate responses, and justice. In this episode, my colleague Claire Doyle and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Yvonne Su, an assistant professor in the Department of Equity Studies at York University. Dr. Sue is a scholar of interdisciplinary migration and international development, whose research focuses on queer migration, disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation, and climate change-induced mobility, among other topics. This episode is part two of a pair of episodes on the intersection of climate migration, equity, and policy. In our conversation with Robert McClemon yesterday, he spoke about how climate change and other factors interact to drive climate-related displacement, as well as what just migration might look like. In our conversation today with Dr. Sue, we drill down a bit further into the experiences of displaced LGBTQIA people in particular, and what safe and just migration might look like for these communities in the face of climate change. Dr. Sue, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, My colleague, Angus Soderberg and I are really thrilled to have this conversation with you about climate migration, and particularly diving deep into some of your work on equity and the perspectives of queer refugees. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we know that climate change is reconfiguring life everywhere. Tens of millions of people around the world are driven from their homes every year because of climate and weather events that they've had to endure. But we also know that generalized narratives about climate and migration miss really important nuance. We know that people face vastly different kinds of migration pressures based on their identities and their livelihoods. And these things impact not just their motivation to migrate, but also their experience as migrants. So to kick off the conversation, we'd love to hear, based on what you've seen in your work, what are some ways that socioeconomic status, identity, social inequalities, and other factors influence people's decision to relocate in the face of climate change? I think they play a really big role because I think the narratives in policy and in the media are often very singular. They paint this picture of um, men and women displaced without much complexity or without much understanding of why they would be displaced or even just timeframes. Because often it's seen that a disaster happens and it's a disaster that takes place in a large scale immediately and people are displaced. We don't think about uh, the slow forms of disaster or the slow enacting aspects of climate change where people have to take you know, a while, years to decide if they're actually gonna leave their piece of land, their ancestral homeland, farmland that they're very attached to or even just a city. And that's when the different socioeconomic conditions are more in play. And we often forget the costs of moving. It seems like in the media, it's just like that, like this pick up and, and go, and there's no further thought into how much uh, plane ticket costs for the whole family, or worse, these trips across the Aegean Sea or other places when people have to go take uh, the sea route. The smugglers cost a bunch of money, and, and getting to these places also costs a lot of money. I'm not saying that most people displaced by climate change takes those routes, but because climate change is not recognized in the 1951 convention as a way to be a refugee, many people do end up taking more informal routes and end up carrying these costs. So it's it's very dynamic. There needs to be more research into this. 
but there's definitely multiple identities and socioeconomic conditions for people that move. Great. Yeah. So, and broadening the discussion here just for a moment and thinking a little bit more about the history, which you were mentioning there, um, I want to bring in the 2022 IPCC report, which highlighted that the ongoing impacts of colonization uh, compromise the ability of many people to adapt with the current effects of climate change. So I'm curious, is this a pattern or something that you have recognized in your own work uh, that areas that felt the full force of extraction under colonial rule now are also the places where people feel climate migration pressures the most? Absolutely. I think a history of colonization has a huge impact, not just on the countries that experience it, but also, I mean, physically, but also on the people's mindsets. There's a colonial mindset that has unfortunately come with this experience, and that has an impact on migration and has an impact on how people move or also decide not to move. And I don't think we talk about colonization and its impacts, especially in the global north. We don't like to talk about it. <laughs> But those in the global south definitely suffer from that history um, and this idea that certain places are the best. So, for example, there is a myth, I would say, that there's a most of the migration in the world is from the global south to the global north. There's these media depictions of people from the global south invading borders in North America, in Europe, and overwhelming its local population. But the empirical evidence actually shows that global south to global south migration and movement is way higher. It outpaces global south to global north. So we're actually entering an era where there is mainly south-south migration, especially on the continent of Africa. So that also takes the narrative of colonization and kind of flips it, right? But because the narrative of colonization is so strong, we're obsessed with this idea that the global north is invading the global south. And it's just not true. And it also means that policies aren't there to react to the realities of it. Uh, and people get offended, of course. Not everybody wants to go to the global north, right? They're, they can make very smart choices moving to a city or a nearby, uh, nearby country uh, and still be successful and achieve all those things. So I think we definitely need to give global south to global south migration more play. I think that ties really well into the next question about how migrants are received around the world too. So in thinking about these migration flows, we know that the way migrants are received is not uniform. A scholar at the Wilson Center recently published a series of stories about climate and migration, where he reported that uh, in the conflict in Ukraine, Ukrainian Roma have had more trouble securing housing in Moldova and other neighboring countries because of stigma. And we've also seen in Europe that support for Syrian refugees, for example, has been consistently lower than support for Ukrainian refugees. So I'm curious to hear from you, what are some ways that you see identity and circumstance influencing how migrants, um, especially maybe climate migrants, are being received around the world? Yeah, so I'll talk more about migrants in general and then talk about climate migrants, because the Ukrainian Syrian case that you're talking about, it's fascinating in the country of Poland, right? Poland is heavily in the news because it's received so many Ukrainian refugees, right? Over 2 million. I don't know if it's 3 million by now, but they opened their borders. They were really welcoming, lots of resources. And of course, that is in huge contrast to how they responded to the Syrians, there was a really viral BBC interview where one of the ministers said that we will not be accepting one Muslim, not one. And that is our policy. And he said, and he's not wrong, that's what people voted it, voted us in to do because it's a populist, ultra-conservative party. 
right? So he's not wrong in saying that the people voted for their agenda and therefore they want to enact certain policies that are gonna support that agenda. So we see that it really is based on lines of religion and you know where the people come from, perhaps stereotypes or perceptions about what their ethnicity brings or could impact their culture. And they don't see that so much with the Ukrainians. However, the Ukrainian case is fascinating in Poland because of what you said, which is circumstance. The context has actually changed because after Crimea, Poland also received a significant amount of Ukrainian migrants. And in that time, they were seen as your typical migrants, second-class citizens. They were your Uber drivers, right? They were people that had to take jobs that were not other that, you know, quote-unquote normal Polish people wouldn't take. And as a result, there was actually a lot of hostility among the population. The Polish people didn't really like the Ukrainians after Crimea because they just felt like they were coming in and taking their jobs. Now you've got a case where the situation is completely different with the war right, with completely different with EU funding and support, and they've opened their doors and they're receiving money from EU. So it, it's also fascinating how one population reacted quite differently to separate migration flows from Syria and Ukraine, but also very differently from the same population in Ukraine at different timeframes and different circumstance, which brings us again to how we need to have a much more dynamic understanding of migration, whether it be just migration normally or refugee flows like we're seeing now, uh, and then again, bringing it back to climate migration, it's also much more complex than the media or policymakers depicted. Again, people can migrate over, or they could decide to might take years to decide to migrate. It's not just right after a disaster or a climate extreme event. A lot of people don't want to leave. That's another part of the conversation that's really important that we often don't talk about, is that many people who live on uh, the islanders who also live in just pieces of land that they really care about, that have a lot of history on, they don't necessarily want to leave, even if even though they are heavily impacted by climate change. And another thing that often doesn't talk get talked about, and I didn't really, really appreciate it until I read more about it, was that many people don't want to leave their graveyards, the graveyards with their ancestral burial bones, right? Like that's something that people have a huge attachment to because what do you do on a small Pacific island that is going to be underwater? The the graves and the bones, they have to go somewhere, right? And some of them are relocating them inland, but do you dig it up? Do you cremate the those bones and bring it with you? Or do you leave them? Is the more respectful thing to leave them? So there's so many dynamic conversations, so many interesting things that are happening in this space that we need to give more attention to. It is really dynamic. And, and there are many different experiences of migration, too. So one of the communities you focused on in this area is the queer community. And I'm hoping that you could talk about some of the unique challenges and vulnerabilities faced by LGBTQ plus migrants as they resettle in receiving communities. Yeah, great. Thanks for bringing that up. So I've done since 2019, I've been doing a lot of work with LGBTQ plus Venezuelan asylum seekers and refugees in Brazil and Colombia. And they're in an interesting situation because under Bolsonaro's reign in Brazil, it was an ultra homophobic country because he's an ultra homophobic um, president. Uh, and Venezuela also has a homophobic, transphobic culture. So you, you have these people who are displaced in this situation and trying to find a space for themselves between these two difficult places. And on top of that, you have the UNHCR who is trying its best to highlight LGBT as a unique group and have special circumstances and provide them with extra help. 
But all that is really complicated because, and I'll give you a very specific example that illustrates it, which is when me and my team, we were in uh, Pacaraima in the north, um, the border of Venezuela and Brazil, and there were these shelters they have there. There was mealtime uh, every single day in the afternoon, and there were queues to get to mealtime and there were they were labeled because special groups get to access mealtime first and you would have pregnant women you would have women women with children and then you would have lgbtq plus and we often saw that line empty even though there are lgbtq plus community members there and it's because they don't want to out themselves so the unhcr theoretically has done a really good thing by highlighting them as a group and saying you get to have food first because we know you face oppression and discrimination but in the way that they did it in practice, effectively just outed a bunch of people in a very homophobic country, their, their host country, and in a community that is known to be homophobic as well in Venezuela. So that's an example of something that we can learn from and a lesson learned from for other camps that might take place in the future, other shelters that might take place, is that we need to involve LGBT people in these consultations of what types of special service or circumstances they might want. Because if you asked anybody how to get meal time for them faster than other people, because they would they qualify for it, they definitely would not be put me in a special group with the label LGBTQ plus and have me stand there and wait there for sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes while everybody stares at me, right? Or comes up to me and talks to me or tries to call me names or worse, like hit me or you know, bully me. So I think LGBT people need to be included in these conversations about their treatment and other vulnerable groups in general, because I think we try to help them from a more top-down theoretical approach level, and it often does not translate in the local level. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And as we start to see climate or continue to see climate change accelerate, I think it helps shed light on how we can see injustices for queer communities be amplified in this space. Um, and to your point, it sheds light on the importance of involving queer communities in our responses to migration as we will like see more climate migration in the future. So kind of building on some of the solutions that you just laid out and ways forward, have there been any examples of successful initiatives or policies that have been implemented to support just and safe integration of LGBTQ plus migrants or other marginalized identities in your work? And if not, or if those are lacking, what do you think is missing from the conversation? What should we be focusing more on? Yeah, to be honest, I can't think of any national policies that, you know, were quite successful integrating LGBT. I know that's very sad and definitely something that we need to work on internationally and within these countries. But Unfortunately, that's that is the situation now. But I do have kind of a happy story, which is that in Brazil, there is one LGBT um, refugee center shelter called Casa Amiga, and it's located in Manaus, and it does a great job of providing a safe space for LGBT refugees and asylum seekers from all backgrounds. 
And it was created because of this issue that they were hearing over and over again of LGBT people facing violence, facing discrimination, and just not being treated well in the camps. There were a lot of um, women that would just say that, I don't want my children seeing this. Get them out of these camps, move them out of here. And they were facing a lot of discrimination. People didn't want to share bathrooms. It was just horrible. So this shelter that can accept about 30 people at a time got created with separate funding. And it's been wonderful. So we have interviewed residents that have lived there and they'll say stuff like, this is the first time I've ever felt safe as an LGBT person, right? It's the first time I've been able to express myself. And also it draws attention to how complicated their backgrounds and the situation they are. Like in North America, we have this very um, cookie cutter expectation of what a gay person should be, that they have a coming out story, that they have a first time, right? And, and we expect that when we talk to them or when they apply for asylum. You know, the stories that we heard at Casamigo are much more dynamic. Like people have kids at home, people have family at home that don't know still about their status because culturally it's it's really taboo. So for there to be a safe space in Brazil, for them to make friends, for them to express themselves was really great. And especially during the pandemic when LGBT people were to a certain extent stigmatized in the very beginning as potentially being spreaders of COVID, which we know is not the case, but there was news on social media around that. So for them to have a safe space in Casamiga, it did it did wonders. So there are a lot of like local organizations, grassroots organizations, and things just happening at the local and grassroots level that we need to pay more attention to, because that is really where a lot of action takes place and a lot of lives are changed at that level. We tend to have a lot of our conversations around the international level, uh, around national policies, without understanding that we need to make the connection back to local, because that's where the action is. And without further attention to that, then we're really missing some really important things. Thinking a little bit more about that broad change that is needed, we know that addressing climate change also offers a chance for systemic change that goes far beyond the climate to cooperation, inclusion, equity, and towards addressing some of the systemic forms of marginalization and oppression that people have been subjected to. So I guess in one sense, effective climate adaptation it doesn't always have to involve an explicit climate investment. It can Climate action can look like greater social cohesion, incorporation of uh, the voices of Indigenous people in policymaking process. And, and in fact, these factors are actually critical for building effective adaptation methods you know, for the impacts of our warming world. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping you could speak a little bit more about the link between social cohesion, marginalization, and, and climate adaptation. Yeah, so one thing I like to draw attention to is that when we talk about climate adaptation projects or climate action in general, it's often done in a very positive light. And that makes a lot of sense, right? We want there to be positive change, active change when it comes to climate action or climate adaptation. But what that overlooks is that there are often winners and losers of adaptation projects. It's not just an upside. So if we look at something like um, the just transition or electric vehicles, which are a big uh, item that's being used to uh, for mitigation policies in the global north. We don't think about where the metals and minerals come from. We don't think about the energy transition minerals. And 
and that's on purpose, of course. The cars are very shiny. They look very nice. Everybody feels good in their electric vehicle. In the global north, typically, they feel like they're doing their part for the environment. But what they don't know is that an electric vehicle takes six times the minerals and metals than a fossil fuel car takes. And those minerals often come from indigenous communities in the global south because 69% of global mining uh, projects take place in or near indigenous land. So we need to think about the winners, which, are, which is great, but we also think about the losers. And that also has a huge impact on social cohesion as well. Because even within the losers, there are winners and losers, right? There'll be community members that are working in these mines or uh, making money uh, off of uh, this investment. And then there will be people who are suffering from the environmental health impacts of mining, the mercury poisoning or the other contaminants that could be in their water and in their soil. So those, those aspects are really important. And, and lastly, the other thing we don't do with climate adaptation is we don't evaluate them, right? What happens at the end of a climate adaptation project? And this is the work of my colleague, Mag Mills uh, Nova, and she does this great work in all across Latin America. And she just asked the question, what happens at the end of climate change adaptation projects? There are so many now. And I, I honestly don't know, right? And a lot of funders don't know because they're excited to get on the next project. But without evaluating them, without talking to the communities affected, we won't know the answers to whether it increased or decreased social cohesion, whether it caused conflict or not, and whether overall it was successful. And also the question of successful to who, right? Who is deeming this success and how do we count that? If the local people don't think it's successful at all, can we still say it's successful if it's successful in other aspects? right? Or if it reduced uh, or increased their uh, adaptive capacity and, and reduced harm in certain ways, you know? So I think that's really important. And then another point I want to raise is also around recognitional justice. That's also missing a lot from climate adaptation and climate change work is that we need to recognize that indigenous communities and other local communities have knowledge that they can contribute. They have adaptive capacity and practices they can contribute, and they need to be centered in all this work and in research too. And that's something I'm starting to work on in all these themes that we talked about with EDI and whatnot, but we overlook that in these communities themselves that we put ourselves in as researchers, we need to put them at the center of the work. We need to ask research questions that are of interest to them and have evaluation mechanisms where they're involved in so that at the end of the day, we can say that there was some good that was done and that was delivered and not just from a top-down perspective. I'm really glad that we're ending on those points. I think the point about evaluation is such an important one to make, especially at the end of a conversation like this and what sound evaluation actually looks like, who these programs are benefiting, and to your last point, the need to be shaping our research around the voices of Indigenous populations and other marginalized perspectives. So, Dr. Sue, it was really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Uh, you have a real depth of knowledge on migration, inequity, queer refugees, and it's been a privilege to hear your insights on all of this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at New Security Beat and visit newsecuritybeat.org.